You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Teaching text is from Luke seven thirty six through fifty. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, Her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, glad to be here uh, this morning with y'all. Um, I, I love Quentin Tarantino. Um, yeah, out of all the people I knew, I'd get amen out of you. <clears throat> a common element uh, in in Tarantino's films, or, or really, I mean, if you ask me, the the start of any really good television show or film or or novel is. Um, Typically, we'll see this scene uh, that's already in progress. Uh, we experience characters. Uh, we hear a dialogue that's going on. We see a particular scene that's already set, uh, particular actions that are already in motion. Uh, and some of the events that are going on in the scene, they're ordinary things, and they may feel familiar to any onlooker that's, that has just tuned in, like a conversation or eating, or they may be laughing Someone may be crying. The events that are taking place, the people in the dialogue, though they may have some inkling of familiarity to us, what's being discussed isn't always surface-level stuff. The names mentioned, the information discussed, it's not immediately recognizable to us. Uh, and so there's some familiarity, but again, no, there, there's no backstory or context for what we're watching, what we're seeing play out in front of us. And then on top of all that, if you've seen any Tarantino film, we oftentimes get this odd mix of people. 
uh, in that initial scene, who they're gathered together and they would have never in a million years just happened to be together. And both of these elements kind of give us this strange tension and leaves us asking the question, how did we get here? What series of events led to all of these people coming into this place together, being gathered in this place and time. And then, you know, if it's a really good, it sets it up really nice, again, like Tarantino does, we ask ourselves, okay, what's the point and what on earth is about to happen? Now, Tarantino, he's a master of that. The gospel writer Luke, who is a medical doctor and a historian, now he's a master of this as well. He gives us just this sort of scene in the passage that we just read. And so here are the primary characters in the story. We have this Pharisee named Simon. We have Jesus. And we have an unnamed woman from a town, from the town that they, they're in. And, and, and she is, she's not known by her name. She's only known by her sin. And it's likely that she was a prostitute. There's also in this scene a less obvious fourth character. And it's the unnamed crowd that's looking on in the text who this morning crossing church we are a part of and just because there's a 2,000 year gap between when this this event occurred and July 10th 2022 what I want to say from the jump start is it is no less significant that we are gathered together in this place looking in on this meal this morning all right so are y'all ready to jump in all right, let me pray just real quick for us. King Jesus uh, would you by your spirit open our eyes and ears to see you to experience you as you truly are. Help us, Lord, to see the real you. Lord, I, hope, I ask that you would help us to recognize that the state of our hearts today is not a problem for you at all. Jesus, make your presence known to us in whatever place that may be. And now, Lord, may the meditation of my, or may my, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. If you know anything about Pharisees and prostitutes and Jesus, you probably know that the narrative will not have to develop very far um, to speculate that this scene has all the ingredients of, an, uh, of explosion. A powder keg, if you will. The types of people who are around this particular table in this particular home, they, they don't typically schedule dinner parties together. But in Luke 7, here we are. And well, Jesus is at the center of all of this commotion. Might be getting ahead of myself a bit here, but crossing church, I want y'all to look right up here and, 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 and here, like, like I want to tell you, like when there is commotion, when there's chaos, when there's loss, when there's tension, when there's uncomfortableness, based on the story that Scripture tells us, that we can be assured that King Jesus is not keeping a safe distance. He's not, he's not like, like looking from a corner somewhere, lobbing holy hand grenades in an attempt to level everything that's gone wrong. Rather, he enters in. The story of Scripture tells us that he enters in in and, and, and the person work of Jesus, and, and he is the second person of the Trinity. He, God in flesh, puts on human flesh and bones and moves in the neighborhood. He comes close. Jesus is at the center of all of this commotion. Why would there be a commotion at this dinner party? Well, the Pharisees 
or religious leaders were sort of known for um, categorizing people as sinners. And if you made it into this category, it's a safe bet that you would be outside, cut off from the religious community. You'd be deemed unclean, not worthy of being in community with them or, in their minds, God. If Pharisees happened to be around this type of person... They believed that they themselves risked being um, cut off from being ceremonially unclean. And, 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 and then they made it part of their religious duty to cut these people out of their lives so that they could live a pleasant and sort of hassle-free life. Now, that's exactly contrary to the incarnation. We just talked about Jesus, right? You see that. Immediately before this passage we read this morning, Luke gives us verse 34. And here's how how Jesus sums up what the Pharisees and religious leaders had to say about him. He says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you call him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This gives us a peek into the hearts and the minds and the lives of the Pharisees. You see, their train of thought goes something like this. If you are someone we deem a, quote, sinner, then we stay away. If you associate with sinners, guess what? You're just as bad as they are. So any talk of any idea that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that would have been a hard pill um, to swallow for the Pharisees. I said earlier, like if Twitter was a thing, they they would have said something like, hashtag not my Messiah. That's just what the Pharisees and religious leaders thought of Jesus. But apparently, though, we see this sort of, this, this guy, Simon, um, it's interesting because he wants Jesus to come over for a meal. And for some, like, like for some reason. Now, we don't have much information to begin with, um, but we see, like, you, you kind of get the feeling that there is this ulterior motive, like an undercurrent of this. One author says, perhaps Jesus, uh, perhaps because Jesus had preached in the synagogue and it was considered a, 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 a meritorious act to invite traveling rabbis to a Sabbath meal. Like, no doubt Simon also had other reasons, but perhaps he was just curious. Maybe he liked to boast about celebrities he knew. It's even possible that he had some spiritual interest because in Jesus' time, there were small study groups that held common meals for the purpose of religious study. The reality is we don't know exactly what was going on there, the motive for all this. But here's what I do know. And here's what I, what, what I really love about the text is, is that Jesus accepts the invitation from Simon. Jesus goes to the home where he no doubt knows that there is going to be something that goes down, Right? Another thing I'd like to point out is that the Pharisees were intellectuals. They were academics. They loved learning about the latest theological trend. They, they dedicated their lives to it. They loved discussing theology. And they had a reputation for not wanting to be left out of those conversations. Like they had FOMO mentality when it came to theology. They wanted to weigh in. They wanted to give their two cents. They wanted to quote the teachers that they studied under. They wanted to, they wanted to just, just have a, a big group discussion about things. And so for Simon... There's two things happening, I think. If Jesus were a, quote, true teacher, and he passed his theological test, well, then Simon the Pharisee would have wanted to be the first one to invite Jesus over for a meal. Or, if Jesus failed to live up to Simon's expectations about the Messiah, he'd be the one to give a sharp rebuke in front of a dinner party, and he'd be the man, right? You see, this encounter, good or bad, gives Simon bragging rights. 
outward righteousness and status. Well, that was a big deal to the Pharisees and to the religious leaders. They fought hard to be at the center of everything. And so now let's talk about the dinner party itself and some of the cultural things that are not exactly explicit in the text. Now, I'm not going to go into a ton of detail. Um, I know this is probably a passage that y'all have talked about. You know sort of some of these things. But we need to know that the dinner party seen here is not like a meal that we'd be accustomed to. In this particular time period, um, when people would gather for a meal, each guest at the meal would recline at a couch with this table in front of it, right? And and so they would recline, like laying down, um, with their feet pointed away from the table, leaning on their left arm, and they would eat with their right hand. Now, that sounds like the most uncomfortable thing ever. That's how they did it. I like chairs. So, so there's this dinner party going on. Everybody's reclined, laying down. Um, folks are gathered around the table. They're likely discussing some theological topic. Again, a proponent that Jesus had been teaching in the city and it was invited over, probably talking about what Jesus um, had just taught on. And, and here's the thing, like this conversation's going on and just a question for us, like how many of you have ever been like out just taking a stroll And you saw a dinner party, somebody you didn't know in the distance, and you thought, you know what? I'm going in. (laughs) Another question. How many of you have been throwing a dinner party and you just had random people kind of walk in? I got one hand right there. I've always wanted to say this. I see that hand. (laughs) Always want to say this. Just random people say, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going in, I'm going to eat. It's probably not likely. I mean, there may be one or two. It does take a bit of audacity on the part of the person walking into the party. But, but one thing is like, like culturally here, like we've got to note about the time period is that, is that typical dinner parties in first century Palestine, when they were, they were held outside in a courtyard and a person like Simon would have thrown a lavish party. Especially if the person was like, if it was a person like Jesus, he was kind of the buzz, right? So Simon was probably like, like, like he, he wants to show off what he had to offer and who was sitting at the table. And the openness, what, what the openness would do, the outside courtyard would allow people on the street to sort of see what was going on. They could get kind of close. They could hear the conversation, but then, and then they could, they, they would, the goal would be to create this sort of desire for people who are not at the table to think, man, I wish I was at that table. Now think about what we know about Jesus, what he said and what he's done so far. Think about his reputation. I think it's safe to bet that there were several people gathered here to see what was going on at Simon's house. So the dinner party's going on. And then apparently this woman who is known as a sinner, she slips into the party. And what I believe Luke is telling us about this woman is that she gets around. Woman's promiscuous. She has a reputation in the community for this. Now, if you're given the title of sinner, it's a safe bet that you're either a, uh, you're one of a few things. You're either a tax collector, you're a prostitute, you're a drunk, you're a Gentile, or you're an adulterer. And just to reiterate, one of these types of people, like, well, you wouldn't find them on the guest list of a dinner party 
at a Pharisee's home. The reality isn't lost on this particular woman either. She knows the environment that she is entering into is going to be uncomfortable for her. Yet for some reason, she dares to walk on in. What nerve? What would, act, what would make this woman act this way? And I, I think it is because this woman has seen and heard the real Jesus. Right? She's seen and heard the real Jesus. She has seen and heard the amazing things that Jesus has been saying and doing. And don't miss this. Like, go back. Um, when you get done, I told the, the, the early crowd, like, go back this afternoon and look at Luke chapter 6. And then read all of chapter 7. And then read chapter 8. You Actually, just read, read the rest of the Gospels too. But, but particularly those three passages because they are full of the types of people that Jesus is drawn to. The poor, the outcasts, the needy, women, sick, demon-possessed, Gentiles, outcasts. Like she has heard all of this and she knows that going to this dinner party, it's going to be full of contempt and shame. But nothing was going to keep her from this man that she's heard about named Jesus. Because he's her safe place. He's like, if all of this is true, like I could, I could hear the thoughts in this lady's head, right? And she brought her expensive ointment with her, her oil. And that was typically to anoint the head. But it's like, if, if I just get to his feet, that's good too. Imagine, if you will, sitting at this dinner party. And there's a pretty well-to-do teacher. He's been teaching in the public square. He had a following of people. Um, and, and people are speculating. I mean, you hear these winds of, this, is this the Messiah, you know? It's a big deal. As the dinner party progresses, this woman slips in. She grabs the feet of this man, and she begins to weep over his feet. Now, the text says that she washed his feet with her tears. And, I mean, I ask myself when I read this, like, how, how many tears you got to cry to wash something, especially feet? Like, that's a, this is a boo-hooing woman. So this woman is making a scene, understatement. And then, like she doubles down. She takes down her hair. Now that doesn't sound crazy to us, but Luke's painting us a picture here. One author says this about this particular um, incident. He says, the woman treats Jesus with a shocking degree of intimacy. This is not appropriate public behavior. She lets down her hair to wipe tears from Jesus' feet. In that culture, letting down your hair was what you did in the bedroom. Then the woman kisses Jesus' feet and pours perfume on them. There's even a suggestion that she is treating Jesus as a client, possibly the only way that she knows how to relate to a man. Those at the party would have thought, everything about this woman is wrong. She does not belong here, and her actions and the actions she performs are inappropriate in any setting especially for someone like Jesus. Now, this is real talk. If you are at this dinner party and your name is not Jesus, you are absolutely appalled by what's going on. Like this is that proverbial record scratch, what is going on here, hide your kids, like cover their eyes, all of that. Jesus never stops her. Jesus never stops her. 
One author says, at the very least, Jesus could have said this. I appreciate what you're doing here, but it's not really appropriate behavior. He does nothing. His passivity in the face of this behavior is extremely eloquent. And my, I would add to this quote, unsettling. I don't do well with awkward. If you're sitting around this table, you're thinking, what would, what, I mean, think about what you'd be thinking about this lady, the audacity. You'd be thinking all kinds of terrible things about this lady, the audacity. What an interruption. No one's ever going to come back to my house again until she let her hair down and touched Jesus' feet. And then you'd be thinking everything bad about him. Jesus must not care very much about speaking the truth. They probably know one another, know one another, you know. It's at this point in the text where we begin to see some of the motive behind Simon's invitation to Jesus. He had, he had, in his, like he had his mind pretty much made up before Jesus came over. So Simon likely thought, in the event that Jesus is a prophet, I'll invite him over to, to talk shop and see what happens. And when this woman enters the scene, Simon, like, 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 and Simon sees Jesus' response to her, his mind is all the way made up, like he's through. No way Jesus is a prophet. No way. He would, he, he would, he'd know that he'd just stay away from people like her. In Simon's mind, like what kind of person, especially a Messiah, claims to love and serve God and hang out with sinners like this woman? You see, he's got an expectation for Jesus. And when Jesus doesn't fit his expectation, he rejects him. Simon only wanted Jesus at his table in order to feel him out a little bit. And when Jesus didn't fit the bill, Simon wanted Jesus to know, hey, bro, you ain't welcome here anymore. The tragic, tragic, tragic reality of the religious leaders is that they were guilty of having their minds made, already made up about the Messiah. And they totally missed Jesus. No one read no one studied. No one knew their scriptures better than the Pharisees. No one prayed more than the religious leaders. No one tithed more than the religious leaders. Tithing out of their spice racks, y'all. No one attended synagogue more than them. No one had more theological discussions than them. And in the Gospels on Mass, no one missed God's promised king more than them. That's tragic. Leslie Newbegin says this, Jesus is who he is. And though our perceptions of him will definitely be shaped by our own situations and the mental information we have received from our culture, our greatest need is to see him as he truly is. What he's saying is that we can only see Jesus through a narrative that is larger than our own. It's the narrative of scripture through the story of God. Here's what the resurrected Jesus himself says later in Luke 24. He says, the law, the prophets, it's all about me. In other words, go look at it. We must be willing to reorient ourselves and our, our picture of who Jesus is with what we see in the gospels in the greater story of God. Doing that, and that's all fine and good. Everybody agree with what I just said? Yeah, all you agree. But here's the thing. Doing that is always going to cost us something. Doing that is always going to cost us something. 
In this scene, what we eventually find out is that Simon wasn't even willing to pay the price of what had been considered even common, decent hospitality. And so his intentions from the beginning have not been on the up and up. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. So, so here's the thing, like what's going on in Simon's heart? And remember, he's not speaking it out loud, but, but here's the thing. He's not speaking it out loud, but brother, he's exposed, Right? And, and the reason is because Jesus, the sinless son of God, is seated at the table and he's always, Jesus is always committed to showing us a true picture of who God is and how he's working to bring people near who are far away. Jesus says, I have something to say to you, Simon. I love that verse. Jesus has got something to say. And like, my picture of Jesus, honestly, in that moment is like, all right, Jesus is about to check this guy. He needs to be checked. Jesus got something to say to me too. So I've got to be, un- I- I've got to be, I can both love that verse and be totally unsettled by that verse. I love the fact that right here, right now, if you're sitting in this room and there's conflict or turmoil in your heart about Jesus, he looks you right in the eye and he says, I have something to say to you whatever your name is. Like, part of following the way of Jesus is just saying, Holy Spirit, help us to listen to that voice continually. Like, we don't arrive there. And what is it he wants to talk about? What is it he wants to say? Well, he gives us a parable about a person who is forgiven a little and a person who's forgiven a lot. And here's the interpretation of the parable. This is pretty easy to understand. It's a lot harder to Sort of get our minds around. It's just two people. Both have a debt to pay. One's a huge debt. The other's a big debt. What levels the playing field here is that both parties are completely incapable of paying the debt. Simon the Pharisee, though he doesn't realize it, he is just as incapable of atoning for his sins as the woman who is grabbing onto Jesus' feet. See, the difference for him, it's all about circumstance. Simon's able to live a life that's free of the riffraff or the unmentionables because he believes that the hour, his outward devotion to God is his way of righteousness. Like he, the more he does this, the more he does that, the more he stays away from this, the more he stays away from that, the more righteous he is in his mind, the more God loves him. What he does is who he is, and by that same token, Simon believes what she does is what she is, or who she is. She's a sinner. No need to ask, like, like, no need to ask why she does the things she does. No need to try to get behind what's behind all of it. No need to ask her what happened in her life that sort of led her down this road. No need to do really anything except for count her as less than a human being. Do you see this woman, Simon? Of course he physically saw her. She was the person responsible for this epic fail, the party that's playing out right before everybody's eyes. She made a mess of the dinner party. This woman right now, in Simon's eyes, at at best, at best, she was a problem to be solved or someone to be removed from this space. See, here's what I think Jesus is really asking Simon. Do you really 
see her as a woman? Do you really see her as a human? Not just her actions and how you believe her actions define her. Not just as a category of a type of person. Not just somebody who's messing up your good night at a dinner party. Not simply, so not, not, not someone who's simply a sinner or an epic failure, but as a human being made in the image and likeness of the God that you profess to have all devotion to. Do you really see her, Simon? Because I, I think this is what Jesus knows. If we're able, able to simply detach personhood from someone, then the next logical step is to be able to treat them in whatever way we want to because we, um, we have convinced ourselves that we are not committing a sin against another human being. We're just weeding out sinners or dangerous people or problems. We're weeding those things out of our lives. We're protecting ourselves from the riffraff. And that, y'all, is at, at its worst, is baptizing all that and calling it religious duty. But contending to see the real Jesus will always lead us to see others as Jesus himself sees them. Contending to see the real Jesus will always lead us to see others as Jesus himself sees them. We do well to ask ourselves, do we really see the men and women and children around us? Not as problems to be fixed, but as people to be loved and cared for. Man, we love we love a good come to faith story, don't we? We love it. We should. We should. I mean, we should celebrate and love it. But 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 we 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 typically like them a whole lot more after the person seems to have like, like worked their life all out. If we, if what we hate is. I, I mean, talk about addiction. Like 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 we all of us in here would be dumb to think that we didn't hate it when someone relapsed. You know what the reality of recovery is? Relapse. Like that's part of it. The reality of being a sinner, it's relapse. Because all of it's addiction, right? We hate it when that happens, but at the same time, we can't, we can't ever like, like get to a place where we think everybody's fixed and enjoy the story and tell this, well, we're perpetually telling this story for 15 years about somebody, right? The mess is what we love and hate. I pastored a church plant in Nashville for... Uh, 10 years, we're there 12 years, and I know that typically when things in community gets hard, um, like our tendency is to isolate ourselves, right? Work it out on our own, rather than just show up to the party and either in, either in desperation just cling to the feet of Jesus, or just allow the good news to simply expose our heart right where we are. And if we're honest, both of us scare us to death. Right, because we're we're at the end of ourselves, like we're we're, yeah. Around this table, like the the playing field is level, and it shows that we are all needy people, hungry for something outside of ourselves um, to give us real and lasting sustenance. The invitation to Simon, the invitation to this woman, they are the same. It's like recognize who is seated with you. It's Jesus, the bread of life, and he is real last, he's the real lasting sustenance your heart longs for. In the passage, how does Simon and the woman respond? Well, one author says, uh, the woman, 
Prostitution, if that was her business, well, it's a commercial parody of hospitality. But Jesus recognizes her actions as the real thing, right? as real hospitality. He interprets what she does as a loving act, true hospitality, rather than an erotic act, prostitution. This bold encounter costs the woman, hear this, this bold encounter cost the woman everything she had. In a very real sense, she was risking her life to touch the feet of Jesus. Conversely, the encounter with Jesus cost Simon basically nothing. And here's where Jesus further exposes the heart of, of the host. Foot washing, oil, a greeting even, would have been offered to every single person that was seated around that table, that was invited to come to the party. And what Jesus is telling us here is, he didn't get any of that from Simon. Right? Jesus is saying, this normal hospitality, Simon, you never extended this common decency to me. Implicit in the text is that, is that not only did he not extend the decency, it was kind of like, I mean, it would have been, y'all know that scene on Friday, um, like, like we're in the front porch and they go, whoa, like somebody says, that would have been like back in the day. <laughs> Everybody at the table would have known it. And so not only is it not doing that, it's like, oh, I messed up. It's, it's implicit in fact is that Jesus treated, or Simon treated Jesus with callous, calculated contempt. He carefully avoided every custom that would make Jesus feel at home. And everybody knew it. Jesus says, this woman, this woman, though her sins are many, she has the right posture. She is someone who knows true forgiveness. She knows the meaning of real hospitality. And here, like, like there's, a, there's a picture we can paint of this woman in our head um, that, that, that she's groveling on the floor uh, at Jesus' feet and that she's trying to earn something from him. Um, and, and here's the thing. At the feet of Jesus, what she's doing is pouring out her love and affection for him in the only way that she knows how to do it. Like she's overcome, Clearly. In her emotional state, she's overcome and clear, like pouring everything out. She's loving Jesus out of the overflow of love that she herself is experiencing in the Father at that moment. And think about this. If the woman had heard Jesus teach, and it's likely that she did, and if she had seen him associated with the least of these, it's not hard to see how she could say, even me, Lord? And in this moment that everyone agrees on the surface is an absolute train wreck. She hears the tender response of Jesus. Look at her and say, especially you, sister. And if you're here this morning, you're asking the same question. Like, like even me, Lord, I want you to look up here and I want to say to you, yes. 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 Especially you, based on the authority of God's word. In the book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, Brennan Manning says this, and just full disclosure, this is going to make you uncomfortable. Um, I think real grace always does that. Um, Here's what he says. Because salvation is by grace through faith, 
I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hand, I shall see the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me she could find no other employment to support her two-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse, but did the best she could faced with the grueling alternatives. The businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. The insecure clergyman addicted to being liked who never challenged his people from the pulpit and longed for unconditional love. The sexually abused teen molested by his father and now selling his body on the street who, as he falls asleep each night after his last trick, whispers the name of an unknown God he learned about in Sunday school. The deathbed convert who for decades had his cake and ate it, broke every law of God and man, wallowed in lust and raped the earth. But how, we all ask. Then the voice says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. There they are. There we are, the multitude who so wanted to be faithful, who at times got defeated, who at times got soiled by life, who at times were bested by trials, wearing the, blood gar- the bloodied garments of life's tribulations, but through it all clung to the faith. My friends, if this is not good news to you, you have never understood the gospel of grace, end quote. When we, y'all, when we begin to experience grace like this, that mishmash of people who through the lens of the culture has every reason just to cancel each other and stay away, or gather, we, we, we purpose to gather around a table to be honest about what's going on in our hearts, what's going on in our lives, and seeing and beholding Jesus. Because here's the thing. We can't lift anybody. Like, like, like a, on our own, like we're just telling a bunch of stories and we just look like a diverse people together. But here's the good news. Jesus is in the center of all that commotion. Like, and he wants to be there. He's there. He's in the center of that commotion. Always welcoming. Ever inviting. Always looking to love us well by showing us how to love him. And showing how to, how to love ourselves and showing us how to love our neighbors. And, and that, that is the picture of the church that the world needs to see and the world needs to experience. A place where grace abounds. A place where grace abounds. Now, I don't know if you know this, because this has probably uh, never happened here. But any one of your missional community meetings has a potential to, uh, like, just to go off the rails. Sometimes, like, like again, I don't know if y'all have had this happen, but, but um, sometimes you can be rubbed the wrong way, um, disrespected, offended, ticked off. You might even not like somebody that shows up, or they may break your stuff. Does that happen? Okay, that's happened. Okay. All right. I knew I was among friends. We hate that, don't we? It's the worst. And we do hate it. It's amazing grace, y'all. Just to be clear, like I don't think it's I don't think it's grace that the TV gets broken 
or someone gets offended. But what I, what I do, I'm, at least this morning, July 10th, right? I am, I'm in a place where I'm able to receive that this is the, this is sort of the, this is the water where Jesus is going to break in and do some pretty amazing things. And it, it, it may not be, oh, well, Jesus needs to do something to that person that broke my TV. Like they need to tell their kids not to throw a football in the house. Um, for example. Uh, <laughs> um, maybe he wants to do something in my heart. See, that's the thing Simon wasn't, he, I mean, he thought he was right. shows us that we need Jesus to help us discern what's going on in our hearts. It shows us that we need a family around us who will point us toward him. The picture in Luke 7 is a beautiful picture of what we, I think what we all desire as gospel, as a gospel community. Not because everyone's believing the gospel perfectly around the table. Y'all, that ain't going to happen until Jesus comes back. Like we're going to, I've got, I keep like looking through different parts of my glasses and it's because I'm old and this is my first set of progressives. And so, yeah, holler if you hear me, right? Um, Like if I just like look up like, and that's, that's the whole Christian life after meeting Jesus. Like we are learning how to look through these glasses in a different way. And when we figure out one part of it, it's like, okay, I'm good walking this way. But if I turn my head quickly, I'm going to fall off this stage. I've got to. We've got to keep pointed forward toward him. And the good news is that, that the good, like the good news is for you this morning, that the good news of the gospel is present with us, with us at the table, not in some like, like, like just heady, like knowledge or whatever, but it's in a person and his name is Jesus. And he's always eager to break into our hearts and show us a better way. And so my prayer for you, for you, um, Crossing Church, is that the diversity displayed around your tables in thought and in race and socioeconomic status and discipleship and political affiliation and nationality and ge- or, or gender or whatever. Like, I hope it's, it's not somebody raising their hands praising you just for the sake of all that but for the sake of you guys being all that and then lifting your hands up and saying, and Jesus is in the center of all of it. And when they say, how did that happen? And you're able to go, the name that is above every name. He drew us to this place. He's working, us, working with us in this place. He showed us that we're welcome. He's actively working in our hearts to make this a safe place for one another and for others who are not yet seated here. Let's pray together. Jesus, may it be so in our hearts. And Lord, let our belief be real belief that trickles out in our hands and our feet and our words. And Lord, I pray your blessing on these brothers and sisters, these dear brothers and sisters um, in Paragould, Arkansas, who you are doing wonderful things with. Lord, as we move into a time of communion, uh, my prayer is that you would help us to today um, see this bread and this cup as an ordinary means of grace that communicates the extraordinary good news that you have bled and died to redeem us to the Father. Thank you for that. Thank you for uh, this time today. In Jesus' name, amen.